as a church, we took a pause in our series in Mark. Um, it's been a, it's been a great series and it's, it's always fun whenever people, when you're in a series for this long and people actually said, when are we going to stop with this break and get back into Mark? They're liking Mark. And so that, that makes my heart feel good as your pastor. But we took a a break just to focus on the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Uh, But this morning we're going to pick right back up where we left off in Mark chapter 10. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one there. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours, uh, our gift to you. So please take that Bible and, uh, and in Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be at today. And what I want to do, I'm going to do something just a little bit different today. I'm going to recap a lot of Mark for about half of our time together, and then we're going to dive in verses 1 through 12 uh, in, what, in what Jesus is teaching and talking about there. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to bring our focus back to the life and ministry of Jesus and then build up into where God has us this morning in chapter 10. So I know Levi just prayed. Let's just never pray too much. Let's, let's just come before God and His throne and, and just ask Him to, to be in charge today. Father, we... We recognize you as Lord. You are Lord whether we recognize it or not. But we want to, we want to say you are, you are Lord. You are the Christ. You are, you are God. And so, Father, we give you our time right now, whether we're right here. I know we've got some people watching online because they weren't able to make it today. God, just make your presence known, Father, and, and, and help what your word has for us today, which, what you've got for us today. Help us, help us take that in and just and just rest in that and, and grow in it. So, Father, we give you our time today. Be in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark begins in the first words of this gospel with a statement that really he really wants his readers to get. He's, a, he's about to tell us and all who reads, Mark's main audience was to the Gentiles, so not, not the Jews. He's mainly writing this to the Gentiles, and he wants all who read to know what to expect and what this whole writing is going to be about. And he writes this in verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right out of the gate, Mark wants you to know, Mark wants us to know that everything we are about to read is this. It's about the gospel. And the word, the word gospel means the good news, right? And so he calls it the gospel. So it's the best news ever. He's about to tell us about the best news ever. And the good news, the best news ever is about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God. So Mark is saying, Jesus is here. Listen to what I'm going to tell you. He's the best news ever. He is God. And as Christ, he came for you. And as we read through Mark, we see that Jesus came to to live and to teach and to guide. But Jesus ultimately came to be our Savior and to die for our sins, but not just stay dead, but to rise again. right? So So that our relationship with him could be restored and our sins could be forgiven. I was sharing a couple weeks ago about my, my boys praying and really kind of confessing a sin right in front of me while we were talking about sin. Um, but it's just amazing. And my, my, my boys are, are learning more about, more about Christ and, and, and sin and those types of things and just listening and confess and just pray to God, God, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for dying for when I hit my brother or when I did this or disobeyed mommy. It's just amazing. It's awesome for me as a dad to say, man, they're getting it. And so from the from the start of Jesus' ministry, he begins by calling people to him. We're going to fo- It is really quiet in here. There's got to be some kind of noise or something going on. I don't know. Jesus is, yeah, there you go. Jesus, throughout his ministry, he begins by, by calling people to him. 
In chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this. This is the first record we have of Jesus speaking in Mark. He says, the time is fulfilled, and the king, or once he starts his ministry, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says, it is time. Turn from the world. Turn from your ways. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. And he tells him to believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of, of, in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And he begins his earthly ministry as he begins that he shows... As we start walking through Mark, Jesus begins to show just who he is. Throughout the entire book of Mark, but especially the first eight and a half chapters, uh, he, he's, he's showing us who he is. He begins teaching. He begins teaching with authority. He begins casting out demons, and people are thrown off. They've never seen anything like this. And when he casts out demons, he's, he begins to show his authority over all things, including the demonic and the devil. Praise God for that. Amen? Man, he shows his authority over that. And how do the people respond? Mark one twenty seven. They were all amazed. That word amazed is really, they were astonished. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? What's going on? A new teaching with authority. Now keep in mind, these people had heard the scribes teach, but not in the way Jesus had been teaching. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. And we know, as we've studied, that that his fame grew beyond anything they'd ever seen. And Jesus goes on and, and he continues to do miracles. He, he heals a man's illness and then he, he, he forgives a man of his sins and just continues to perform more and more miracles proving that he is God. And in all of that, Jesus never stops calling people to, to follow him. Remember that call to, to repent. It means to turn from something. But what do we do? We turn to something or someone else. So Jesus is saying, turn from anything and turn to me. Turn from your sin. Turn from the world and turn to Jesus. And he continues, Mark 1, 16 through 20. Jesus goes to the fishermen, Simon and Andrew and James and John. And as they're out fishing, it's their livelihood. That's what they do. They're out there fishing. And Jesus goes up to him and he calls him to follow them. In verse 17, he goes to the fishermen and says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The call for these men, but also for each of us is, is the call to turn to Jesus. By the way, if you're getting tired of hearing turn to Jesus, man, sorry, man, it's just going to be packed in today, man. So, so turn to Jesus and follow him. What he's doing is this, as he calls them and us to follow him, is he's giving them an invitation to be with him. And as we are with him, he equips us and he prepares us and he grows us to what? To be sent out by him. That's how Jesus does things. He says, follow me, and out of that relationship right here with these fishermen, follow me, and then out of that, I will make you become fishers of men. It's out of our relationship with Jesus that everything else flows. Are you with me, church? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me, right? And here's the the thought. You want to be used by God? You want to be used by God? Spend time with him. That's how it works. You want to be used by God? Spend time with him. We see more of this in Mark 3, 14. Jesus was ready to, to call all 12 of his men to be his disciples and apostles. In verse 14, we see this. Mark writes, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him. To send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You see that? He calls them first to be with him, and then he sends them out. This is something we can't miss, church. Jesus came to be with us. That's who he is. Emmanuel means what? 
God with us, right. A, a name for Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us. In John 15, we hear Jesus tell us that we are to abide in him and that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So to be used by him comes from being with him. I've, I've had plenty of conversations with people, man, I just, don't, I just don't feel God using me in a certain way. And I'll ask my very first question is, are you spending time with him? Are you spending time with him? And abide in him means to re- remain or stay. I really love that word abide. When you look at the definition of that word up, it really means to be at home with. And when we look at that word with Jesus, to abide with Christ, man, we are at home with Christ. So throughout his life and throughout the word of God, we get that call and reminder to be with him, to be with Jesus. And as we continue our recap a bit, we continue to see Jesus show just who he is. He, he shows that he has uh, the authority in what he says. He shows that he has the power multiple times over demonic and over sickness. He proves that he has the power to forgive and that he is God. He even shows his power over nature. I mean, it's kind of neat, you know, you see all these other things, but then whenever he speaks to a storm and says, hush, be still, and it does it immediately, like who does that, right? It's God that does that. And so he continues to show um, who he is as, as God. He takes five loaves and, and two fish, and, and he takes those and he multiplies them enough to feed thousands of people. And there's leftovers. So in Mark, he continues to show just who Jesus is. We see Jesus teach and show them God's way and challenges their way of thinking. He teaches them the will of God. He takes the time to show them God's design for their life and God's design for just for the world in general. He even teaches them how to be with him and follow him. You know, I was preaching one time years ago, probably two or three years ago. <coughs> years ago, it's a long time. Two or three years ago. And, and I was preaching on sharing the gospel and they just said, I don't know how. You're, you're telling me to share the gospel. I just don't know how. And I love what Jesus does. He, he, he teaches them how to be with him and how to follow him. The Bible tells us in, in Mark chapter 9, right, to set yourself and your desires aside and, and give everything to Jesus. Die to yourself and carry your cross. Jesus, as he teaches, he just spends time with his people, taking, uh, talking with them, engaging with them, serving them and loving them. You know, Jamie said his, his word was, was discipline, right? Discipline, I get it right? Mine's just relationships, I mean, this, this past four or five months have been really, 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 really busy. And I'm just asking God, God, I just want to get back into relationships. I want to in, grow in my relationship with you, but also with others in our community. And, and so that's what I love about Jesus. He's about relationships with his people. And as we studied the life and ministry of Jesus throughout Mark, we noticed a shift. All the way up, we're seeing his miracles, we're seeing who Jesus is. And then in the first eight and a half chapters, that's what we see. And then the rest of the, the time... In Mark chapter 8, something else happens. We see a transition in Jesus' life and ministry. It's at this point that we begin to see where Jesus is headed. We already know because, right, we've read the end of the book, right? We know where Jesus is headed, but they didn't. They didn't, they didn't get it. And so it's at that point, at the eight and a half mark, that, that we begin to see where he's headed. We begin to see his, his mission and what he came to do. And he begins by asking his disciples. He begins this discussion before he tells them what he's going to do. He asks them a very important question. It's the same question that each of us must answer in our lives. And sometimes I think we only, sometimes I think that we only believe that we have to answer this once, but it's daily we answer this question. He first says, who do others say that I am? Right? Who do others say that I am? You're John the Baptist, you're this prophet, you're this. And then Jesus kind of gets to it. He says, who do you say that I am? God's a relational God. He's a personal God. Who do you say that I am? Right? So that's the question for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? How does your, ref- how does your life reflect who you believe Jesus is? 
When you wake up in the morning, who does your day start with? When you go to bed, who does your day end with? As you're working, as you're, as you're taking care of kiddos, as you're cooking, as you're doing all those things, who is Christ? Who is Jesus to you? And Peter confesses, he says, you are the Christ. Meaning you're the, you're the one promised by God to save us and to rescue us and, and to bring us into a restored relationship with God. You're the one that came as Lord. And so he says, you're the Christ. You're the Savior of the world. That's what he's saying. And that's what Jesus is calling us to believe. And so today, who do you say that Jesus is? And for the first time, if, if you've never answered that question, the answer to that question will determine your eternity. The answer, how you answer that question will determine your eternity. And so they confessed who Jesus is, and then Jesus throws something else at them. You guys keeping up with me so far? We're kind of walking through this halfway quick. You good? We're good? All right. So, all right. I picked on, I got to pick on you today. I've been picking on Ben recently, so. Where am I at? All right. Jesus, Jesus throws something else at him. He tells him, this tells him why he came. Verse 31 of chapter 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, a name for Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Can you, can you imagine how mind-blowing, that, how that would have rocked them? We just, hey, we're confessing that you are Christ. You are the Savior. You're the Messiah. And now you're going to tell us that you're going to die? That doesn't happen. That, that can't happen. That doesn't happen to a Savior, to a Messiah. But he tells him, this is why I came. He actually says that it must happen. He must suffer. As Lord and Savior, as the Christ, I must suffer and die, Jesus says, for you. I must go to the cross for you. I must carry your sins and die your death. And then I will defeat Satan and death for you. And I will rise again on the third day for you. This is why I came. And after that point in Mark chapter 8, that's where we see Jesus headed. That's why he came. All of that is packed into where we are coming up to today. All of that is, 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 is packed into our study and what we've walked through. And I do want to say this. If you missed some of that and you want to walk through, uh, Chris Lord does a good job with our website. All of that's on there. We're on, it's on podcast as well. So you can walk through the series and listen to those at your, at your, in your own time. But, um, but you, you can do that. So that, that kind of catches up a bit. And now leading up to where we are today, Jesus had been teaching in Capernaum or he had been in Capernaum, teaching his disciples and spending some time with them. I like what Jesus does. He still, he still serves and ministers, but he's, he intentionally goes up to spend some alone time with his 12 disciples and just to be with them. And we come to chapter 10, and Jesus and his disciples, they, they're heading back into Judea and into a place known as Perea. And Jesus begins to do what he does. He points people to God, to the gospel, and he teaches them. Now, one last thing that we need to cover that we haven't covered yet that's really important before we approach our text today is this. There's a group of religious leaders known as the the Pharisees and the the teachers, the scribes, so the keepers and the the teachers and the leaders of the law and the religious leaders. Uh, Many of these men used their power and their, their, their position over people. Some of what they taught was good and true. Some of it was intermingled with their own opinions and their own traditions. And they began holding their teachings and their ways over the Jewish people, making it almost impossible to follow God. Religion can do that, can't it? It's like, what does religion teach you? Do this, do better, be better, right? Jesus came because we can't. 
But the way that he, the, these religious leaders were calling them to live was, was making it really impossible to follow a God. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene and he begins to teach and he begins to challenge their way of thinking and he's performing miracles, it was these Pharisees that pushed back on Jesus. They should have been the first ones to follow him and to recognize who he was. They should have been the first ones to serve Jesus, but they, they went a different route because they were challenged and threatened by Jesus. And Jesus was threatening their way of life and what they were, what they were doing, and they continually tried to trip Jesus up and, and get him in trouble. And when those plans didn't work, they began to devise a plan to get rid of him. Some of your translations will say to kill him, and some of yours will say to destroy him. They're plotting Jesus' death. It seemed like that became their number one mission, trip up Jesus, cause his followers to, to fall away from him, right? If he doesn't have anyone follow him, he doesn't have any power. And then they plan to, to kill him. And here we are again in Mark chapter 10 with the Pharisees. The Pharisees come up to Jesus again and they come to challenge him. And they're not, and it's important that I say this, they're not caring about people at all and about what they're talking to him about. Not caring about the families and, and different things that are going on. They're, they're not concerned about even the law uh, and the question that they're asking Jesus. They want to trip him up. But they come to him and they ask him a question concerning the law and divorce. The Pharisees don't care about divorce here. That's not their goal. They don't, they don't care about divorce here. They don't care about the couples that are involved. They don't care about a family being affected or destroyed. They don't care about anything else except trapping Jesus. So before we take the rest of our time to dive into these next verses, I just want to make sure that I, that I say this, and I want you guys to hear me clearly on this. There are people in this room, actually I'm sure everyone in this room or those listening online have been affected in one way or another by divorce. Whether you've personally felt that or been involved with that, the hurt and devastation of divorce, maybe it was personal or someone really close to you, and you've walked through the heaviness of all of that, I want to tell you this. I want to encourage you by saying this this morning. You are loved here at Authentic Life Church. Do you hear me? You are loved here at Authentic Life Church. And I also want you to hear this. Sometimes those that have experienced divorce for many different reasons, those that have walked through a divorce, sometimes you're treated as second-class Christians. I want you to hear my heart, and I want you to hear the heart and the intention of this passage. That is not the intention of what Jesus is about to say. He's not saying anybody's a second-class Christian. Are you with me, church? It's not, it's not the heart of this church, it's not the heart of this message to look down on someone because of divorce. Are we clear? Are we good on that? And, I, and I'm just going to challenge you, man. If you have that in your heart and you look down on someone because of that, man, you need to repent. I Just hear me clearly. You just need to repent of that. And so if you've walked through that, you are part of this family, you are well-loved, and most importantly, you are well-loved by your Creator God. Amen, church? Just like anybody else that's walked through Stuff like that in our life. So as a church family, let's dive into the words of Jesus and to God's word and hear from him this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. Would you guys do me a favor? Let's stand and just honor God's word this morning in the words of Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again. And according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife or to, to put her away, to send her away. And he answered and said to them, what, does Moses command, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this 
commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him, would be questioning Jesus about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So you guys can be seated. Thank you. What is happening here is this. Jesus is teaching. And, and a group of Pharisees come up, these religious leaders come up, and they ask Jesus a question to, to test him, to trap him. Uh, we need to understand, their goal was not to get a question answered about divorce. Their question was to destroy Jesus. And the question is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? And he said, as, as we said before, they, they, weren't, ans- they weren't after the, the answer to that question. They're not concerned about a husband and wife walking through a hard time. They're not worried about their children. They're not worried about their friends and family. They simply wanted to je- test Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees, they went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him or destroy him. That's their goal. They had a plan and a motive. They're trying to find a way to cause Jesus to lose his following and to discredit Jesus. It's all their plan to get rid of him. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife, his wife? And I like what Jesus does. Jesus answers their question, puts it back on them with a question. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Right? You guys should know the law. What did Moses command you? In verse 4, they said, Moses permitted, not commanded, make sure you hear that. We're going to talk about that. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. <coughs> Jesus is asking this question about Moses and the law to take them back to the intent of the law. In that day, in Jewish culture, the wife was not permitted to initiate a divorce. So back when the law was written, all the way back in Deuteronomy, and then even now, a wife was not allowed to initiate or file for a divorce. And so when a husband would send away or divorce his wife, the life, the wife was left vulnerable. Are you with me? Are we good? Okay, so she was left vulnerable. And most men, especially without knowing why a woman was divorced, they would not re, would not marry this woman. And so what the Pharisees are quoting here is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4 where Moses puts into place a certificate that stated, here's your, here's your certificate of divorce stating why you're being sent away, why the divorce was happening. Moses laid out this law. If you read the, the context of, of Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's mainly to protect the, the, the woman, her, her reputation, and in some cases allow her to remarry. It says in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her out from his house. The indecency, it could be, and it often was, a moral sin or a sin against their their marriage. But it could also be a heart issue with the husband, the one that that he's not happy or for whatever reason wants to send his, his wife away. And so Moses wasn't commanding a divorce, but he's saying, you know what, it's happening. We've got to figure out some structure for this. And so he laid out this certificate because even though God's design is that marriages remain one and remain together, divorce was was happening. 
And if you read on, you'll see that Moses talks about divorce being a defilement. But back to the question, the Pharisees had, had no desire to care about the family or those being destroyed or hurt. They grabbed a hold of a difficult law to discuss because they knew that it could trip, or they thought it could trip Jesus up. And Jesus jumps back in and he says in verse 5, But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. That's tough words. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. What Jesus is getting at is this. He's telling them, you aren't worried about God's design for marriage. You're not worried about the people as you should be. You're more worried about what you are able to do, these, these, the certificate and the ability to divorce so that you can go and pursue sexual immorality. The certificate of divorce was to be the very last resort in a marriage that had adultery or hardness of heart in, in that marriage. And the people had begun to use Moses' words to just walk away from marriage that God put together. Are, we, are, we, are you guys tracking with me this morning? And the Pharisees were just okay with that. Those that were supposed to teach and guard that law and guard God's intent for that, they were just okay with that. And Jesus, he's pointing this out. The only reason Moses had to put this into place in the first place was because of your sinful and, heart, and your hard hearts. A heart that was unwilling to hear from God and a heart that was unwilling to change. So Jesus isn't really getting into a debate at all with these Pharisees about divorce. He's going back to the law and to the intent of it that they should be teaching. And he points out the intent of marriage and the intent of the certificate. And then in verse 6, Jesus, as he always does, goes to the heart of the matter. What does he do? He goes to God's design. And in this case, it's his design for marriage. That's what Jesus wants us to get. What is God's... Don't, don't, don't argue with me about divorce. What is God's design for marriage? We know, every single one of us in here know, and just as they struggled with, we have many fleshly desires in our life, don't we? But we're always pressing against that. Don't line up with God. Fleshly desires, and too often men and women, both of us, we try to manipulate God's word so that we feel better about sin in our lives. I've done it. I'm confident. You, yeah, are you with me, church? We do that. We've got that, that sinful, that fleshly desire, and we try to look at God's Word and say, okay, I want to do this. How can I make God's Word fit with what I want to do? We try to manipulate God's Word to line up with what our flesh wants. Something like this. I know what God's Word says, but I think God would be okay with this or that in my life. But Jesus, he doesn't even really debate about divorce. He goes on to talk about God's design in marriage. And he says in verse 6, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He's reminding them of what this marriage is. One man, one woman. Anything outside of that goes against God's design for marriage. Are you with me, church? One man, one woman, and he continues. For this reason, by the way, he's taking them all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, okay? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, really separate yourself from that union and, and be all in on that one, and the two shall become one flesh. This is God's design for marriage. One man and one woman for life. To become one flesh carries the meaning to be joined, or actually it also means to be glued together, permanently glued together, showing the bond of oneness in a marriage relationship. So Jesus continues, so they are no longer two. You become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And he points them back to God. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. 
the hearts of this of these religious leaders and many people of that time want an allowance to to leave their spouse for whatever reason they deemed important. We're going to talk about the exception clause here in just a little bit with divorce and those types of things. But Jesus doesn't he's not even going to talk about that at this point. He wants us to understand what marriage is. Jesus is telling them stop worrying about a loophole or trying to manipulate scripture right so that you have the ability to leave your marriage. Right? Start start looking at what honors God. Start looking at what God said from the beginning. Start looking at His design for your marriage. Jesus is reminding them and anyone that's, that's listening that regardless of what culture says, regardless of what your flesh desires, God created marriage. Here's a freebie. In saying that, marriage is not ours to change the definition of. Are you with me, church? We don't, our church, our, our doctrine, the Bible doesn't change because our culture changes. The definition of marriage doesn't change with what culture says. Amen, church? Are you with me? Amen. All right, we're good. Marriage is not ours to change the definition of. It was God's idea and God's design for marriage is that one man and one woman become one in marriage. They're bonded together as one permanent unit. And he says something really important. What therefore, that therefore talking about all that, what God has put together, let no man separate. The big idea is this. It's about turning to Jesus. It's about turning to God and trusting in him and his will and his design. Just like Jesus had been calling people throughout the whole book of Mark, throughout his whole life, turn to God, right? Turn to God. Follow Jesus. And I I need you guys to know that God's design for marriage is under attack. Do you guys understand that? God's design for marriage is under attack. Your marriage is under attack as you sit here today. Whether it's by the culture, whether it's by people in your family, whether it's by Satan, your marriage is under attack. But we can stand firm in God and His Word because even when culture shifts again, God's Word remains true. Are you with me? And that's why we say at our church, by the grace of God, we will remain faithful to the word of God. And I need you guys to hear me as your pastor. Man, I, man, I stand firm on the word of God and we teach. This is not an easy sermon to teach. Are you with me? This is not an easy topic to approach. But God's word says it and Jesus talks about it. And so we talk about it. We live in a world where we must keep our eyes on Jesus, keep our eyes in his word and keep our hearts aligned with his. And as followers of Jesus, with grace and love, we trust God and live a life that is pleasing to him. A man and woman coming together as one, glued permanently together. Here's another side note, each person giving everything. You guys ever go to a marital counseling where they say, man, each one gives 50-50, that's a bunch of junk, man. Are you hearing me? That's a bunch of junk. It's 100%. Each spouse gives 100% in their marriage. And living in, a, in, in, in such a way as a couple with our eyes on Jesus individually and together, collectively, pursuing him together, knowing that the world around you and Satan wants you to fail. And let me, it's, it's, it's even bigger than we even think. It's bigger than just your marriage. Because here's the reality, whether you're a religious person or whether you are a secular person, sociologists agree all over the world of this. As goes the family, so goes the community. Are you with me? As goes the, as goes the family unit, so goes the community or the city or the country. But we know as followers of Christ, as goes our relationship with God, so goes our marriage. As goes our marriage, so goes our 
family. Are you with me? Man, our, our relationship with God dictates how our marriage will be. Our relationship with our spouse dictates our family unit. And our, mar- our family unit dictates how... Col- Are you with me, church? So Satan is going to attack that. I just want you to know. He's going to attack your relationship with God. He's going to attack your marriage. And so we keep our eyes on Him. As a couple, we stand firm following God's design, knowing His will and His design is what's best, and it's to be permanently one. Church, it is worth fighting for. You're in a marriage today, it is worth fighting for. Young people that aren't married yet, your marriage is worth fighting for. And Jesus was laying it out for these Pharisees, the design that they were already well aware of, but refusing to really follow. And with this statement, what God has put together, let no man separate. It is a call to turn back to God. That's what this is. It's a call to turn back to God and trust him in his design. Is marriage tough? Oh my goodness, marriage is tough. Men, don't say a word. Amen, ladies? All right. Okay, everybody's good. Okay. Marriage is tough, but it's worth it. Verse 10 through 12, Jesus continues. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. So the crowd and the, and the Pharisees are either gone or they're outside the home. And Jesus, as he often does, he teaches his disciples and he helps them understand. And he goes a little deeper. And he said to them, so they've asked some questions and he's responding. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. We'll talk about that. And if she, the wife, herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So let's go back to what we said at the beginning. Mark's audience is mainly Gentiles. Gentiles did not have the rule that a wife, a wife could file for divorce. Are you with me? She could file. So that's why Mark is addressing this. You look at Matthew. Matthew doesn't mention anything about that because Jewish women could not divorce. Are you, are you guys with me? Okay. And so Jesus in just the last uh, few verses is using some heavy language. And really saying that marriage is important. He's really saying, fight for it, protect it. Keep from committing adultery against the spouse that you wrongfully divorce. People have asked many times, and it will be a question asked for years to come. In fact, it's been a question that I've been asked numerous times in the last few weeks. And it's usually a question that breaks my heart. Does this action or that action by my spouse allow divorce biblically? For that answer, we turn to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. First of all, we understand that God's design and his intent is for marriages to stay together, but that doesn't always happen. And so Jesus says this, Matthew 19, 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus uses this phrase, it's immorality, it's talking about sexual immorality. It's actually the Greek word pornea, where it makes us think of pornography, Right? Sexual immorality, where Jesus is talking, what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about the sexual immorality is any illicit sexual activity outside of the bonds of a marriage relationship. It's often referred to as the exception clause. So when we look at this, we can see that divorce biblically is permitted in the case of sexual immorality, right? That, that, that happening outside of the marriage. But let me say this in the same breath. Divorce is not required. Divorce is not required. Because here is what Jesus is doing this whole time. He's pointing them back to God's design. Yeah, you've, you, you have that clause. But what God's put together, let no man take apart. It was never God's design in marriage for there to be divorce. It was never in God's design for marriage for sexual immorality to happen. Right? It was never God's design for two to be separated. 
But there's this nasty thing in all of our lives called sin. We've got sin of the flesh or sin of pride, right? Prideful flesh or self-gratification. And when we follow that sin, men and women, we open the doors for destruction in our marriage. We open the door for destruction in our marriages. But in this exception clause, it is meant to be a last resort. Why? Because God is big and His forgiveness and His grace is huge. Are you with me? And if we trust God and we pursue Him, even if there's sexual immorality, we should heed the words of Jesus to let no man separate and take the hard steps to restore. Church, I've seen it. God can heal. Are you with me? And then we also need to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, and what Paul says regarding marriage and divorce. So you've got that, that verse out of Matthew chapter 19, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Paul is, is talking to the church, and he states that, he's leading up to this verse, he's saying, if you are a Christian, and you're a man or a woman, you're a husband or a wife, and you're a Christian, but your spouse is not, don't divorce them. Because as believers, we still follow God. Amen? Right? Amen. You guys are going to have to help me out with these amens, man. Thank you. You're good. But then he says this. Yet if the unbelieving one, if your spouse that is not a Christian leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. What Paul is saying is this, if your unbelieving spouse abandons you, that's what that word is talking about, that leave, if they abandon you, you are not committing adultery if they divorce you and you remarry. Are you with me? So we see two different places talking about sexual immorality and then the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Those are really your exception clauses, right? And, and let, me, let, me, let me lay this out. I know marriage is a lot tougher than all of just those two things. Right? And, and, and we've, I've had to work with, and I know people and counselors that have had to work with marriages that walk through some really tough stuff. And so, by the way, I'd love to walk through with any of you guys with that, um, or, or, or help get you guys connected with, with, uh, somebody that, but I'd love to, to walk through that with you if you want to, but, um, we can't cover all of that right now, but begin, again, it's not a must. Divorce is not a must because God can heal these marriages. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. It takes a ton of hard work, but it's possible for God to heal and restore marriages. But we do have those two exceptions there. And no, there is much more we can dive into. We could, we could really dive into this passage deeper. We could dive into Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to have that deeper conversation about divorce and marriage. But church... If you or someone you know has been through a divorce, even outside of these exceptions, know this, God is a big God, right? And he's a loving God that allows forgiveness and restoration. Anybody in here that does not have sin in their life, just jump up and shout hallelujah right now, right? I'd love to hang out with you and see how you do it. But God is a gracious God and he forgives and he restores. And God's people said, amen. He's a gracious God that calls us to repent and to follow Him. So just like He does when there are other sins in our life, man, we just, we just take that to God and we just ask God to, to forgive that and we, and we just keep following Him. So as we stated before, by no means does divorce make a person a second-class Christian, but Jesus and all things in our lives that don't line up with Him and His Word, we, re, we just repent of that and we continue walking with Jesus. Are we good? All right. But let's not lose sight of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is showing the priority and importance of us lining up with God. 
and in this case, his design for marriage. Church, it's all about us being with him. It's all about us walking with him. It's all about growing in our relationship with him. Keeping our eyes on him, even when things get tough or when our culture says otherwise, or they try to change some definitions about trusting God and his design for you and your marriage and your family and the culture and the community and all those things. Because as Jesus says, apart from him, we can do nothing. And my prayer today is this, as we just walk through that, that hard text, my, my t- in all of our life, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Actually, I'm just going to talk about that. It's actually in your bulletin. That's our prayer focus for today. In all things, church, in every area of your life, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your parenting, whether it's your work, whether it's school, whether it's making a decision, whether it's in ministry, whatever it is, in every area of our life that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Always seek Jesus first. Always keep your eyes on him. In your marriage, in any other relationship, in every area of your life, be with him. Spend time with him. Grow and walk daily with him and trust in him in all things. Life is tough, church. Amen, right? Sin is there. But God is gracious. And while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, God proved. He demonstrated his love for us and he died for all those that have sinned. And God says, man, my, my grace is there for you. My love is there for you. My salvation and forgiveness, eternal life is available for you. If you're sitting here today and you say, man, I've never given my life to Jesus. Today can be that day. If you're sitting here today and you say, man, I've walked through that. Thank God that he's gracious and that he forgives, right? And walk strong in your marriage. Are you with me, church? Man, just because some, man, you walk strong in your marriage that you are now and you walk, and you, you walk together with God, keeping your eyes on him. We say this a lot. I started talking about this at the beginning of Mark, but the more time we spend with God, the more we know Him. The more we know Him, the more we can't help but fall in love with Him. The more we love Him, the more we obey Him and keep our eyes on Him and live for Him. The key is to be with God. Are you with me, church? And so my word doesn't have to be your word, but it's going to be the word for today of that relationship. Man, really focus on your relationship with God today and this year. Let's pray. Father, we love you.